Good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Ben, if you're visiting. It's also Ben if you're not visiting. It's always Ben, but you know what I'm getting at. It's good to be with you. We are in a series on the gospel according to Mark. If you remember, we started this series out by reminding ourselves that the gospel story, the gospel is the story of Jesus completely, all that he brings to the to the world, his life and death and resurrection, but that includes everything that he does and teaches. So we're studying the gospel today, and we're studying it in the way that Mark talks about it. And so uh, I'm excited. This is good. I just got back from the men's retreat, as Danny said, and, uh, you know, I'm a little sleepy, but so are, so are all of you now that it's raining again. And, we are going to do three short stories today, one on demons, one on sicknesses and fevers, and one that has to do with crowds. I'm going to be interested in looking at how Jesus and his disciples walk through this, I think it's about a 24-hour period, it's kind of the first uh, public ministry of Jesus with his newly following disciples. You remember last week, he called the disciples and Simon and Andrew and James and John dropped the fishing nets and they said, all right, we're on board. And so now they enter into this public ministry. And I want to ask a question before we start. And that would be one related to you, your own heart and mind. I would just ask you, what is driving you toward Jesus? That's a complex answer, I'm sure. What is it that drives us toward him? We might think of it, what is, what is it about Jesus that's pulling us in? Why are we moving in his direction? Another way to think about it is, what, what is it that we think Jesus came to give us? What is it that he came into this world to provide for us? And the way that you're currently answering those questions is definitely, I would say it is having a profound impact on your relationship with God, or perhaps lack thereof. How do you answer those questions? What's your relationship with God like? What is it that's drawing you to Jesus? Lex orandi, lex credendi. This is a often used little quip by our Latin church fathers and loosely paraphrased, it means something like, what you, how you worship is how you believe, okay? How you worship is how you believe. And what they're getting at is, it's easy to talk about what you believe. You know, I believe this, this is what's right, I agree with that. <clears throat> if you want to know what you really, truly, deeply believe in your heart of hearts, excuse me, <clears throat> especially as it pertains to Jesus, look at how you worship him. Look carefully at how you worship God, and you will get a, a genuine picture as to what you really believe. It's a good way to take a pulse on where you're at with God. So here's a little example. I once had a youth group student uh, in my youth group when I was a youth pastor, and she was a total stud. She was awesome. She was the, the gal who was always there. She was always engaged. She was really interested in talking and being a part of it and serving and being a part of the group. She was very adamant about her love for the Bible. She loved the Bible, she talked about it, how important it was to her, how much she loved to carry it with her, keeping notes in the margins from the different classes that she had been in or lessons she had heard and she'd like to go back. And you've heard, you heard her talk often about how much she loved the Bible. And then she gets to her senior year, she's about to graduate and I get a phone call from her, I pick it up. Hey, what's going on? She says, have you seen my Bible around? I said, well, I don't know, there's a lot of, it's church, there's Bibles everywhere, what's it look like? She says, well, it's a pink Bible, it's got a blue side to it. And I said, yeah, yeah, I actually have found that, it's here, you come pick it up anytime. And I thought to myself, I found that Bible two years ago. Well, it's interesting, you know. It's, a, it's, it's one of those things where it's, I love this thing, man, it's awesome, I gotta live by that and look at it two years, every three years, something like that. She could apply Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi to her life and see what she really believed, you know? 
which doesn't need to be this sort of, oh my gosh, I'm the worst, I'm terrible. It's like, oh, that's real. What does that really mean? We like to think things that aren't real often, I think. So look at that first question again. Why do we go to Jesus? He's Lord. He is true life. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to learn from him. He's the way and the truth and the life. That's why I'm going. I want to be Christ-like in everything that I do. That's what's drawing me to Jesus. Good. Okay, that's where we want to be. These are excellent church answers. They'll keep you out of trouble. But consider this, just by way of leading into our text. Consider looking carefully at the way that you pray. How do I pray to God? How do I approach this holy deity, ultimate existence, God? How do I engage with him? There's a way of worshiping God there when you're praying to him. And if you look carefully at it, you can get some clues into what you think about him. You might say, God, please teach me your ways and convict me when I divert away from you. You might say, out of inquisitiveness, God, I don't understand your Bible. Help me become wise in your word. Teach me your ways. Or you might praise him. You might say, Father, you're the one in heaven. You're our Father in heaven. And you're absolutely different than anything in this world. And your kingdom is excellent. And I hope, I plead with you that you would bring that kingdom here into Portland and that I could belong to it. That might be the way that you pray. But it's interesting. Let's ask, is that how I pray? Do I pray with praise and thanksgiving and adoration and desire that he would help me to become more like him? Do a little bit of research. You can look at the Pew Research Institute. The Barna Group does lots of research on uh, statistics within the Christian community. Newsweek has done polling on this a few years ago, how Christians pray. Christianity Today, the magazine has done polls. You'd look at any of them. Go back as far as you want. You won't find a statistic under 80%. 80% of people pray. They say the absolute number one most often thing that I pray for is the physical well-being of myself or my close friends or family. So 80% is not a, a, a just barely a majority or anything like that. That's a big number. That's interesting. I'm not saying you're there, and I'm not, we're not pointing fingers at each other here, but by and large, when the Christian communities in our country are asked, what is it that you go to God for? 80 plus percent, some of them hit it up as far as 87%. They will say, we go so that God would give us physical well-being for ourselves and for our friends and our family. That's the number one reason we approach the Lord. That should be instructive to us. And if we let this next part of Mark's gospel, so we'll be in Mark chapter one. If we let this part of Mark's gospel really take root into our soul, I think it'll help us to see that this is, a, this is something that's been going on for a long time and we will be able to see not just why do I go to Jesus? Because we can answer that and think about it on your, in your own self. But what is it that Jesus is saying that he came to do, especially in this scene? Now, he came to do lots of things. But I want to look carefully at the way people react to him and what Jesus says about himself. So turn to Mark chapter 1, and we'll pick it up in verse 21, where we left off last week. And this, again, is where Jesus embarks on this first phase of his public ministry. So this is kind of scene number one where he's got his guys with him and they're taking it to the streets, okay? Verse 21. They went into Capernaum. Remember, that's a small town, side of the Sea of Galilee. They went into Capernaum. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and he began to teach. And the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. And just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? 
I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Uh, that's, that's eerie, isn't it? Came out of him with a shriek. And the people, they were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? What have we just seen here? A new teaching? And with authority, he even gives orders to the impure spirits and they obey him. And then news about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. What did Jesus come to do? Start to see repeated word in that small story, don't you? Jesus came to teach. Now, as he's there, and people are looking at this, and they say, what is this teaching? And where does this authority? These are the scribes that are in the synagogue looking at him. We have this word in there that says we're not thinking of like the, the super ultimate scribes, but just guys who were literate. They could read and write, and therefore they had an ability to read and interpret the law. And they had a way of doing that, and they were, they were high up in the community helping people to interpret the law. But this kind of teaching that the scribes did was a kind of teaching that was very dependent upon the authority of their predecessors. So the scribe comes to me and he says, all right, in verse 42 it says this, this is how you need to interpret that. And I might say, all right, why is that authoritative? Why do I need to listen to you? Do I need to listen to you? He says, yes, you do. Why? He says, well, because another human being has given me this answer. Another famous person from our tradition has made me authoritative. Notice that the authority was derived from a tradition or from another. This is the way the scribes were thinking. Jesus' teaching, however, comes in with authority and power. It's the same word there. That's what you think. When you think of authority, think of power as well. And it comes in and he is just that. He's not quoting from somewhere else. He's not saying, because I am tied to this tradition or anything like that. He just says to the demon, shut up and leave. <laughs> you know, that might be a bit crass. I'm sure he said it very politely. Actually, I doubt he did. <laughs> you know. But he comes in and they're baffled. They're, this is not the way that, that good teachers behave. So who is this that he has... He's acting this way, but then what he attempts to do actually works as well. <laughs> That's wild. But I want you to notice that even though our minds are drawn to the sort of fantastic, weird, eerie scene of the demon casting out, that's not really what Jesus came here to do, is it? What did he come here to do? Why did he go to the synagogue? Like five or six times to teach, the teaching, the teaching. It's a good thing that he casts out the demons, but we don't see Jesus saying, or Mark writing, they went into Capernaum and the Sabbath came and they roamed the streets looking for demons in people so Jesus could cast them out. This is why he came. A few verses down, we'll get to it in a second, it'll say, to preach. That is why I have come. So in this opening scene over and over again, Mark has said that Jesus came to, to show us something new. He came with authority and power to bring a message to people, to bring a teaching to people. This is why he's on the scene. So we've wondered then, so what's with the demon possession scene that Mark includes here? What's this demon even doing here? Read verse 23. Just then, a man in their synagogue, which is a holy space, a man in their synagogue, he was possessed by an impure spirit. He cried out, what do you want with us? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Notice he says us repeatedly. You noticed that already when we read it first. Us. So we are invited to see Jesus is not just up against a bad spirit. 
but he's up against a whole realm of evil. Have you come to destroy us? And that sentence he says there in verse 24, that opening question, it reads something like, what, what to me and to you? It's, we remember, if you were here through our Exodus narrative, do you remember back when Pharaoh, his first meeting with Moses, and Moses is describing the power of the most high God, Yahweh, and Pharaoh says, what does that have to do with me? What Pharaoh had, no doubt, in his tone was a sense of defensiveness. I am God. Who is this God you're talking about? And what does he have to do with me? You know, in parentheses, because I'm the best. I'm on top. I don't care about that guy. There's a defensive tone here in the demon's question. And that's kind of question. What, what to me? What does that matter to me? And so he's defensive, which means... He sees a threat in Jesus. The demon seems to be suggesting that by Jesus' teaching there, Jesus had invaded his space. What are you doing here? You know, another way to paraphrase it might be, this isn't where you're supposed to be hanging out. This is my zone. Be quiet, Jesus said to him. Come out. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out. Throughout Mark, he makes a distinction between those who have sickness and disease and those who have demon problems, okay? It's important to say that because it suggests that Mark does not see demon possession as just another sickness. Sometimes we think that. Well, that's just how they described being sick back then. Now, today, we know that it's caused by the influenza virus because we have microscopes. So, you know, that's what he was talking about. No, Mark, Mark talks about sicknesses, physical illnesses, and he talks about demon possession, and these are two very different things. He is definitely, throughout this gospel, trying to help us understand that there is a significant spiritual world that lies behind what we can see right in front of us. It's hard to talk about that in a modern world, isn't it? That's not something that, that we, we start to get real, we're kind of walking out on the edge of a plank there, about to get kicked off into the sea of being idiots, you know? But it is, it is true that this is something Jesus is coming forcefully against and showing us he is powerful enough to combat this dark world. It's interesting, too, what did the demon, what did the demon call Jesus? I would expect the demon to say, hey, you're the worst, or hey, you're just an idiot, low life, or whatever. You know, it's how you'd expect him. He says, hey, you're the holy one of God. <laughs> All right? What is Mark trying to have us see there? In Mark, if you, as we continue to read, you'll see that ordinary sick people, you know, Jesus is approaching, they will call Jesus names like teacher, son of David, master, Good sir, or Lord with a little L, you know. They'll call him these kinds of names, but it is the demons that call Jesus names like the Holy One of God, the Son of God, or the Son of the Most High God. It's, it's an interesting thing that happens. I don't know for sure exactly what's going on there, but I suspect that as they are trying to name him, it's a little bit of a picture of the sort of struggle of power. They have had a tremendous amount of power, a stronghold, and by naming somebody, you're trying to exercise power over that individual. And I think you see a little bit of picture here. Now, this, we're not in like raw battle mode here, but it's like a prelude in some way. And they say, you're the Holy One of God. And right there, you would almost expect Jesus to be like, exactly. That's who I am. I agree. And so should all of you. <laughs> but he says, be quiet. And I think that's Jesus saying, you don't get to name me, even if you're correct. You don't have authority over me, not in this world, not anywhere. I think that's something that's going on. It's confusing, isn't it, when you read it? It's like, why does he tell him to shut up and... The demon's right, you know, he is the Holy One of God. Well, I think that what you see and Mark is having us see is this power struggle, but it's not so much of a struggle, is it? 
It's Jesus kind of coming in and saying, here is the reality now. He tells the demon to be silent. And that's one way that Jesus, in this case the exorcist, takes or exercises control over the demon. What I want you to notice here, seeing what's not here can also be really helpful because this text can be and has been used in some kind of weird ways. So what is not going on here? There is not in this passage, I believe there is not uh, some sort of exposure for us to the secret formula about how to cast out demons. Sometimes we look at it, we would say things like, well, if you first proclaim the name of Jesus and then you do this and then you command the spirit that way and then you hold a cross over the demon's head and blah, 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 and then do five spins and then you know, light this on fire, the demon will go away. Sometimes we like to, you've seen that in movies and stuff, The Exorcist, I don't know, I've never seen that movie, but I bet they do that kind of stuff. I've seen some shows where they have these sort of formulaic ways of doing things. I don't think that's what he's trying to help us see here. He's not showing us a magical formula. He uses no incantations, chants. He's not using physical manipulation of any kind. He's not appealing to any deity. There's no candles, there's nothing going on. All Jesus gives is one simple, straightforward command. And so the emphasis is not on, boy, what do we do? The emphasis Mark is showing is Jesus is ultimate and he is total power to the point where he can just say, be silent and that's what happens, okay? And that's good because it draws our hearts and our minds to the, the amazing person that Jesus is and that's what Mark's trying to do in his gospel. All the gospels are trying to do that. Most importantly, so here's where it develops next, Jesus is a long way from wanting to do miracles at this point to sort of prove his power. He came to teach. So why does he cast out the demon? Well, I think the demon is coming in and trying to thwart what Jesus is doing, so Jesus stops the problem so he can get back to what it is he wants to be doing. If Jesus' primary goal was to come in and start blasting demons out of people, again, that would be what we would see in the story, but... He's coming in to do this amazing, powerful work. It seems to be more important, the most important work he wants to do. And when the demon is coming at him and trying to thwart it, Jesus authoritatively, with infinite power, shuts the problem down and then gets back to what he wants to be doing. I think Jesus had no desire at this point to prove who he was. He healed out of love for the sufferer. He dominated the evil powers when they tried to get in the way of what he was doing. And wherever Jesus goes, he was bringing light and truth and goodness to the scene. This is how he rolls. A great question, a little side note, the Bible sort of makes us wonder, is, there, is that what we're doing? Notice Jesus doesn't seem to have any kind of fear. He's not worried about it. He's doing the thing that he wants to be doing, and when a really gnarly, wicked reality tries to, fl the, to floor him, to thwart him, he shuts it down, he moves on, he brings light, he helps. I mean, we've only talked about what he does to the demon. Think of what it does to the man who is finally released from that death grip of being possessed. Surely Jesus loves this person as well. Everywhere we go, are we bringing light and truth and goodness into the scene? Or are we fighting? Are we arguing and bickering and bringing sadness and that kind of thing? Think about how you impact those around you. Jesus impacts people strongly, and they will respond in different ways, but you're hard-pressed. I'd say it's impossible to find a scene where Jesus is just self-seeking or coming in and, and not being totally trustful in his father, you know? He's always living that way. And so when he engages with people, it heals, it helps. It brings truth to bear on the scene that he's in. We use the phrase around here a lot, welcoming everybody into Jesus's life. If that's true, that kicker for that statement, is that you can't really welcome people into a place that you're not. 
Are you bringing Christian hope and life into your circles of influence? And we all have different ones. Big circles are work. Is that a place where your light is shining? Big circles are home and family. Big circles are uh, church. Are we bringing light into the body here? Are we being the body to the body and to the world? Or have we fallen into the, the rote, the routine, the rigmarole of mainstream American life, just working to get mine and have mine, to try to get through it all into a nice warm grave? You know? Jesus is bringing light to bear in this scene. It's pretty cool. After, okay, so after this demonstration of love and goodness, this word gets out quick. You know, this is cool. This kind of stuff isn't happening. Who is this guy? How is he doing this? The word, uh, the news about Jesus spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. We can't help but to wonder exactly what was this news? What was spreading super quick? Why was it going so rapidly? Hey, there's a new teaching. Or, whoa, did you hear about the demon thing? I don't know. It doesn't tell us. Verse 29, pick it up with me again. He says, Mark writes, and immediately after this happens, immediately they leave the synagogue and enter into the house of Simon and Andrew and James and John, or with James and John. And now Simon's mother-in-law, she lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came, and he took her by the hand, and he lifted her up. And the fever left her, and she began to serve them. It's kind of a beautiful, really short story. It's like three sentences long, but here he is. He comes into the scene. He holds her hand, lifts it up, and she's healed. And then she serves them. Simon had a wife. And her mom was there. That's the mother-in-law. She was lying down sick. She's wrecked by a fever. These disciples, no doubt impressed by Jesus' previous sign, I bet you are thinking something like, man, if he could do that, hmm, what about this? Mark doesn't record what they said or how they said it. it, doesn't, it we don't really know much of what's going on there. We do know one simple thing. Jesus went to her. He took her hand. Notice now, she is ritually unclean as a Jewish woman at this point, laying sick with the fever, not really supposed to touch the unclean. Jesus has no problem with that. He's bringing goodness and truth and light to the bear. So he holds her hand, and immediately the sickness leaves. Right on the spot. He helps her, I'm sure again, out of his love. And then notice what she did right afterward. This could be very instructive for many of us. Notice how the Bible says the, the fever left her, and then she went to Facebook. <laughs> and she said, look at how awesome my personal Jesus is. He did everything I needed. He made everything great for me. He's the best because of how he, he makes my life better. No, the Bible says the fever left her and she immediately began to wait on them, to minister to them, to serve them. Jesus heals and she immediately begins to care for others. That's that's a powerful punch to me. So often I think of myself and I say, God, please make my life or my physical well-being better so that I can experience a better life that's better for me. I could keep repeating that. But she seems to say, he healed me, which now makes me more able to help other people. That's a beautiful little picture, isn't it? Why has God redeemed us and saved us and breathed new life into us so we're born again? Is it so we can, we can talk about how 
how awesome our life is now. I mean, that's, that's not bad. Don't hear me saying it's bad to talk about how awesome it is to live with Jesus. We should say that's great. That's a good thing. But her perspective is very much outwardly turned toward the other. And when she's laid up and broken down with fever, there's not much she can do for anybody else. And when Jesus heals her, she, I think, recognizes she's immediately able to be helpful to others. And so that's what she does. She becomes helpful. It's good. Are we being helpful to each other? I think we should be. Well, there we go. Verse 32 is where we're at. So we're down with two stories, and here's the last one. This gets really interesting. Verse 32. So that evening after sunset, now you remember we're in the Sabbath, so when the sun sets, everybody's kind of out and about. We can move around normally again. The Sabbath is over, so everybody's out and about. The sun set, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and all the demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and right there, verse 34, Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons. But he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. We've talked about that. He shut them down. He cast the demons out and he kept them quiet. The focus is going to be on Jesus and his power and what he's doing. There's a huge key here. Jesus is totally winning, isn't he? He's winning this game big time. His goal is to draw a huge crowd, right? I mean, for us good Americans, it's like, oh yeah, this is sweet, the ministry's working, the crowds are showing up. We've got huge attendance. The goal is to gain notoriety, right? To have influence at the widest possible scale. Jesus is trying to build a platform and here he is. Like all good leaders, he's got a bunch of people surrounding around him. And it's interesting what he does. I don't think that's quite right. The whole town gathered. Jesus heals many people. The diseases, the demons, he casts them out. But it's important to not see these two verses merely as a success story. Like, they all came, and then look it, he succeeded here as well. The people are not coming to Jesus for the reason, I think this is fair. Now, we're interpreting significantly here, but as we read it and take it all into account, I think the people are not coming to him for the reasons that he came to them. They come for relief from physical ailments. Jesus came to preach the dominion of God. He has said, the kingdom of God is at hand. In a verse or two here, he'll say, it is to preach. That is why I have come. The crowds are gathered around, I suspect, Because the word had traveled quickly that we have a powerful healer in the neighborhood and you can get some problems solved like that. Go there quick. And man, they're coming in droves. And it's cool. Jesus doesn't just say, get away from me, idiots. I don't want to deal with you. He serves them. He's patient. I think he loves them. But the crowds may have seen only a temporary respite for their woes. And that was what drew them to Jesus. Look at what happens next, verse 35. Very early in the morning, now this is, there's, there's people everywhere in his ministry. You would think, okay, it's here. The people have come. We built it and they came. It's fantastic. Now, let's start doing the great work. They're all here. We've got a captive audience. Early in the morning, while it's still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. <laughs> That's You know, that's not what we would expect. Not at all. We would expect him to take advantage or to capitalize on that opportunity. And Jesus, even in the midst of all those crowds, he goes away to a solitary place to pray. You'll see him doing this throughout his life on earth. Verse 36, Simon and his companions, they went to look for him. And they found him. When they found him, they exclaimed, man, everybody's looking for you. Right there, you might say, I would expect Jesus to say something like, oh, shoot, I've been praying too long. Yeah, let's go. Let's go and, uh, let's go and do some big stuff. We've got a huge audience. All right, sorry, let's go do it. Instead, he says, they say, everybody's looking for you, man. And Jesus says, let's go somewhere else quick. 
Let's go somewhere else, to the nearby villages, so that I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Mm. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Notice, I'm not suggesting that he was bummed out every time he had to cast out a demon, like, oh, fine, whatever, be quiet, go away, demons. I don't think that bummed him out. I think he genuinely loves people, and he wants to heal and help those who are hurting. There's no doubt that that's a huge part of Jesus' deal. But I think that if we're not careful, we might say something like, that's why he came, to make people more healthy right now. And then we say, that's why I love Jesus, because he can bring better physical well-being to me. I'm going to go knock on the door. Jesus, fix me. Fix my problems. Do it quick. I like, I'd prefer you do it like in a super fast way that requires nothing from me. <laughs> that would be the best. Will you do that? I've heard that you've done that. It's really interesting, though. The guys that Jesus has brought into his fold to be his disciples, they look at the crowds and they say, success, success, this is our time to pounce. Jesus is like, let's pray, not pounce. Let's actually go somewhere else because I can't do in this context what I came to do. Let's go to the other villages where there aren't these crowds. Now, again, we're reading into it, but I think it's fair when you think about all of the teaching emphasis on the front end of this day, the preaching emphasis on the back end of this day, and the fact that Jesus, in the midst of the opportunities of a big crowd, he pieces out and says, let's, let's hit the road. And already, we are just a hop, skip, and a jump into Jesus' public ministry and his greatest threats are coming from where? His own guys. His own disciples. In verse 36, it said they went out to search. I was reading from the NIV there. It's a little bit soft, the, the translation there. They went out to look for him. Same, same word elsewhere in the Bible. We, we will, per, we will uh, translate into the word Hunted. Imagine more than just like, hey, is he over there? No, is he over there? I'm not sure. No, they're like, where is he? We've got to find him. We've got to find him. Feel urgency in what the disciples are doing. They feel an urgency. They're trying to hunt Jesus down. Where the heck is he? And you think about that, you know, like, where is he? That would have a question mark and an exclamation point. You know, you do that in texting. It's like, this is a serious question. Where is he? In other places we see the disciple Peter doing the same thing later. This is an interesting bookend. We'll get to it in Mark. Mark chapter 8 is awesome. The Mark and Hinge, the whole story turns right there. But we'll see this moment in Mark chapter 8. You might be familiar with it. We'll get there, but there's this famous line where Jesus says to Peter. Now, that's Simon right now. He'll get renamed Peter later. He says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Remember that line? It's kind of a weird line. In that moment, Jesus has laid out what he has come to the world to do. And in that scene, he's talking about going to the cross to die. And Peter, who loves Jesus and has good intentions and really, really does not want to see this man who has become his best friend go to the cross, he says, that's not going to happen to you. No, 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 no. We're not going to do any dying. And Jesus says, get behind me right now, Diabolos, the Satan. That's a strong, strong statement to Peter. What's he doing there? Well, I think Peter doesn't like God's plan. And he doesn't like the way that Jesus is going to accomplish what he has come into this world to do, he probably just doesn't get it. Like, why would you do that? And so out of good intentions and genuine love for Jesus, he says what he does, and yet that's apparently not enough. You've got to have some truth in the mix as well. And Jesus says, you're on the wrong page, son. You're on the wrong page. You've got to as he said to the disciples on day one, what? 
get behind me, follow me. I'm gonna lead this thing. Here he is, Jesus has got the crowds all over. The disciples say, where is he, where is he? He's gotta go, he's gotta do this. And Jesus says, yeah, we're not gonna do that. We're not gonna do that. I think Mark wants us to pay close attention to Peter. I think he wants us to learn something from Peter's mistake here. In this case, it looks like Peter is trying to control the situation. Jesus was not where he was supposed to be. Jesus was not doing the ministry the way that Peter thought he was supposed to be. Simon thought he was supposed to be. Sometimes we think that about one another. You ever criticize people for the way that they're doing a ministry? That's not the way you're supposed to do it. You're not doing it right. You could be correct. I mean, we all do things wrong, and we do silly stuff all the time, but beware. Beware of how much you believe you fully and truly know the will of God and his ministry plan in this world. Because his closest men walking with him in the flesh in this world missed it over and over and over. Their best wisdom, looking at what Jesus was doing, they thought, that is ridiculous. What is wrong with this guy? And Jesus, I think, very compassionately but strongly says, this is about you following me. So when you have criticisms of others in ministry and the way that they're doing it, be careful. Because when you come to the table, you are saying, if you're coming and bringing that criticism, you're saying, I know about your ministry more than you do. And I know more about the people involved with it than you do. And I know more about what God wants to happen than you do. And I think there are times where that is actually, all three of those are true. There are times where we will be able to see and discern that kind of truth, and we have to help one another get on board with what's true. But before you bring that, make sure you're squared away. You're not just kind of wielding opinions at people, okay? Peter is wielding this opinion, as it were, and he's saying, yeah, Jesus, I know you want to do this thing you're doing by praying over here and whatever, man. This is where you should be. This is the way this ministry should be working out. And Jesus kindly but powerfully does not do that. <laughs> uh, he doesn't do that. Peter means well. He does. He loves him. But he is opposing the essential design of the incarnation. His standing in opposition to it. I think this little episode foreshadows the more emphatic truth of verses 31 through 38 overall, what we've read. That is that discipleship, being a learner of God who follows him, is not about figuring out how to control God. It's all about following God's son. And we can rest peacefully in that. It's weird how we are so prone to want to have that control, and yet when you anchor it into your heart and mind that you don't, it's actually a pressure release. It's a burden lifted. It's like, oh man, that's actually better. I don't want to be in control of everybody and everything all the time as though I were God himself. You can learn that from the way the disciples work. This won't be the last time we can learn a lot from the disciples, believe me. It's great. There Jesus is, safe, comfortable in Simon's house. He's got a nice set of square cement block walls, I'm sure. Some carpet, good seating. All the amenities, all the parking necessary. You see what I'm getting at here. Easy access to the freeway. Lights, sound, screens. And all the people are coming to him in droves. Ben's success. It's awesome. Simon and the disciples, they say, yes, that's what we wanted. We wanted to fill this cement block house out. We wanted to be the most popular. We are. We've got the crowds. It's fantastic. Things are good. Jesus says, yeah, let's go somewhere else. He will not set up his headquarters in a building. He is not interested in waiting for people to come to him. He hits the road. He says, let's get to the other towns. We got to get out there. I'm stoked when you invite friends to church. I get to meet them. We all get to get to know them. That's a great thing to do. Jesus is also more powerfully, clearly more missionally, bringing light out to other places. He's not setting up shop inside. He wants to go into the towns and the markets 
and the streets and the fields where people really live life. People who are never going to come anywhere near a church or synagogue for that matter. He wants to get into the pubs and the taverns and the smoke shops and the dispensaries where people congregate to the grocery stores and to the Costco's to the pricey organic farm booths and the Saturday markets and the trading floors on Wall Street, the cubicles and the offices and the assembly lines, the car washes, the universities, the K-to-fives, the junior highs, the high schools, the CrossFit gyms, the hiking trails, Thai restaurants, Green Bay Packer games. He wants to take <laughs> his light everywhere, yeah? And with a bold proclamation, he doesn't necessarily, we see what he wants to bring is the truth of God's reality into the spheres of the world. And as he goes, he's healing, he's helping, but his big thrust is preaching the kingdom. That's what he's come to do. The kingdom is real to everybody who will listen. He says that. You, human beings, are my creation and my beloved miracles. You're not slaves anymore. You're not slaves to a mainstream way of thinking. You're not slaves to pop religious power brokers anymore. You belong to me, the king, and I'm inviting you to follow me right here and right now. This is why I have come, Jesus says, to teach you about what is real in the world and to preach, to speak boldly and effectively with courage about living together forever with God in his kingdom. And along the way, I'll love people and cast out demons. I'll, I'll do some healing. Obviously, Jesus didn't come into the world to heal everybody. Just look around. If he wanted to do that, he could. That'll happen. I totally believe that, but not right now. There's another project at hand right now, and we're part of it. If you're coming to church, I think Jesus would say, if you're coming to church or praying to me, constantly begging me to miraculously make your lives easier or more fun or pleasurable or more comfortable even, if you come to me looking for that, you're not going to find it necessarily, and you're most likely going to wind up with two significant outcomes. It's going to go one of two ways. You might, you might end up in a place of endless restlessness where the church communities you go to are never, ever satisfying because you're coming to them for the wrong reasons. You become perpetually disappointed with your brothers and sisters. You become perpetually disappointed with church leaders and just the church in general. Or the other outcome is that you have to invent a pretend Jesus, an idol with the name Jesus that you follow and pray to. All you got to do to do that is rewrite the Bible a little bit, redefine Jesus in your own mind, take a few fragments of verses, kind of cobble together this idea, and then you have a fake Jesus that you can bow to. And if that's what you're doing, your life is continuously a life of dissatisfaction, confusion in God, always begging him to be different than who he is, which is trying to control God. That's what Peter did here. That's what Peter will do again when Jesus says, I'm going to die for you. And we don't want to be in that spot. We want to come to God with open minds and open hearts. Who are you? Lead me. Take me. Forgive me. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to think about you alone. If you heal my sicknesses, I am going to thank you. I'm going to bring that request to you. I will. You tell me to bring that request to you in the Bible. But you don't tell me to constantly define my relationship by only ever begging me for more and more stuff. Don't be one of the crowds who's, while Jesus is preaching the truth that will absolutely transform your life, 
you're saying, man, I got a headache. Fix that. You don't come to him because you heard from someone else that he can solve your problems. You come because you choose to listen to him. You come to him in humility saying, I am not you. I'm not God. I don't have the mind of God. Forgive me because I don't know what I'm doing. You know, not listen to me because I do know what I'm doing. God, let's forgive me because I don't know what I'm doing. And I need you to show me how to live. And I'm not asking for miracles anymore. I'm listening to you. I'm not begging on behalf of just myself and my close friends and family. I'm paying attention to you. I'm learning about what you, Jesus, are preaching and teaching. That's why I'm coming to you. I'm hearing you. I'm seeing you. And I'm obeying you. And as I do, I am learning to love you with all of my heart, all of my mind, and all of my soul. Pray with me. Have mercy on us, Jesus. I know that I stand in that crowd, pounding on the door, hoping to find a version of myself that has a superpower so I can control you. And I repent of that. And I speak on behalf of our whole congregation here. There are just so many times in our life where we really truly believe that you're missing something. And that the most, the thing you think is the most important is really not the most important to us. And we're sorry for that and pray that you'd have mercy and you'd forgive us. We want to follow you so much. We already have ears, but often we don't hear. We already have eyes, and often we don't see. We choose to remain blind to your reality. We're not interested in popular American social religion, Jesus. We're not. We're not interested in doing things and saying things that's just built on a foundation of feel-goodery. We're interested in you. So forgive us and please lead us. I want to say too as a pastor here of this Christian fellowship, this church, please help me. Help me to introduce people to you. To lead people to you. Help me to guide my brothers and my sisters into lives that are characterized by you alone. And in, our, in, in the times of need that we have, Please continue to give us grace as we press on, continuing in your word and abiding in you. You are great and greatly to be praised, and we love you. Amen.